Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with June Purvis about her biography of the British suffragist Christabel Pankhurst, entitled Christabel Pankhurst, A Biography. June, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be here. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Um, well, I'm a professor of women's and gender history at the University of Portsmouth here in the UK. I've been writing women's history for a number of years. I used to write on women's the history of women's education in the 19th century, and but then I came into the suffragette movement. I have also written a biography of Emmeline Pankhurst, which most of your listeners will have heard about, and I've written quite a lot on the, the British women's suffrage movement. What was it that led you to write a biography of Christabel? Well, she's been very neglected as a key figure of the women's suffrage movement. There's only been one biography of her, despite the fact that she was a key leader of the Women's Social and Political Union. And her sister, Sylvia, who was less important in the movement, has in fact attracted at least six biographers. And there's another one coming out on her. Not only has Christabel Pankhurst been very neglected, but there's also the fact that she's been very maligned. That's one of the things that I was I found very interesting about your book is the degree to which you don't just write a biography of Christabel, but you also engage with the literature to address this how she's been represented up until this point. And I, I thought it was a very interesting conversation that you were having, in a sense, with uh, Sylvia's uh, Pankhurst's uh, uh, very uh, well-known book. Yes, yes, yes. I think it. I didn't want to write. I didn't want to write a straight biography, if you know what I mean, from cradle to grave. But I wanted to engage with the literature and with, I think, what I see as the misrepresentation of her. And so, to do that, I do engage with her sister Sylvia's book, *The Suffragette Movement*, which was published in 1931 and has become the dominant narrative not only about the suffragette movement, but also about the Pankhurst family. I was wondering if you could start us off in your uh, presentation of the book about by explaining how it is that Christabel's been misrepresented, uh, both by her sister and in the other works. Yes. I think there are two key sources that you've got to look at for the misrepresentation of Christabel Pankhurst. First of all, as I've mentioned already, there is the book by her sister Sylvia called The Suffragette Movement, published in 1931. And what we have to realize is that Sylvia Pankhurst was a socialist feminist who wanted to ally the Women's Social and Political Union, of which Christabel was a co-leader with her mother, Emmeline. Sylvia wanted to ally the WSPU, to the socialist movement. And because of that, 
um, she is very critical of Christabel because Christabel wanted to keep the WSPU free from affiliation to any of the main political parties of the day. So that's one thing. Sylvia is writing as an angry socialist about her sister in the suffragette movement. Also, there is another very important fact that Christabel was the mother's favorite daughter. And so Sylvia is very jealous about that. She's also writing as a rejected daughter. Um, and lastly, because she was jealous of Christabel, she's also writing as a jealous sister. So I think if you've got those three things, those three pegs to hang your re reading, read Sylvia's book, The Suffragette Movement. And so I engage with all that because I think it's important to do so. That's and of course, I, uh, I'm going to say I am an academic, so I would expect my students and, and other academics as well to, to know about that. I think it makes a more interesting biography. Oh, I definitely agree because you, that family dynamic is an undercurrent that runs through the entire book. And I yes. want to take us back to the, 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 the first part of the book where you're talking about the, the family backgrounds. Where, if you could explain a bit more about the context, who uh, uh, Christabel's uh, parents were, uh, not, uh, not just her sister Sylvia, but uh, her other sisters and brothers, and, and how that family dynamic established itself in those early years. Yes, I mean, it's a very interesting family, the Pankhurst family. It's known worldwide. Um, the parents, Richard Pankhurst, he was a radical barrister. And he married Emmeline Goulden, as she was then, who was 20 years younger than him. And they both supported the radical causes of the day, in, including women's suffrage. And there's this wonderful story about how Emmeline was taken as a young girl, a young girl of 16, to hear Richard speak. She was taken by her parents to hear him speak. And as he's stepping out of the carriage, she sees his hand uh, come out of the window and he sees her and falls instantly in love with her. So you've got to realize it's very much a love match between Richard and Emmeline. And it's also a political partnership. And the key thing for us is that the children were not kept separate from the radical politics of their parents. Rebecca West said they bob like corks on the tide of adult life, and I think that explains it very well. They were like little adults. You have – yes, sorry. You, I was going to say you describe a very uh, progressive household in the sense that they're yeah. engaging, questioning. I was thinking about the passage where you described their uh, engagement with religion, which is something that I thought about again as reading when I was reading the later chapters about uh, Christabel's uh, subsequent uh, uh, embrace of uh, second-day Adventism. Yes, not second-day. Se se Seventh-day. Second, second Adventism. Oh, second Adventism. Yes, I mean um, – Richard claimed to be an agnostic. Um, there isn't a, a Canadian scholar who, who doubts that. But anyhow, Sylvia claims that he is an agnostic. And he says, if ever you go back to religion, this is to the children, uh, if ever you go back to religion, you won't be worth your upbringing. Um, so that was, Sylvia remembers that. And of course, she was an agnostic too. But um, the youngest daughter, Adela, in fact, she converted to Roman Catholicism before she died. So it's interesting that at least two of the daughters did become um, deeply religious. The, 
you just mentioned how the match between Richard and Emmeline was very much of a love match. And I thought that came out especially well when you were describing their uh, economic circumstances. You were saying Richard was a barrister and yet he was also involved in these causes. And you have, it's almost tragic the degree to which Emmeline wants to create uh, an opportunity for her her husband to become a full-time activist and, 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 and the efforts that she undertakes to do that and how, Unfortunately, all these efforts just don't turn out the way that she wanted. I know. Emmeline was forever opening shops, as you know, (laughs) when they were early married because she thought Richard was the really important figure in the relationship and she really wanted him to be elected to our parliament um, in London and she thought he would do great things for the people because the point is about Richard. He was clever. He was a doctor of laws, but he was also very much concerned with the plight of the poor and the working class. So he always took on legal cases that never paid well. So they never had much money at all. They were always scraping around for money. You describe how he, as a barrister, he in effect, lived his principles. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how he communicated to that and the role that played in shaping Christabel's development. Because as you describe in the book, she embraces activism at a fairly early age, even before she completes her university education. Yes. Um, Well, don't forget all the children, and they had five children. The two boys died, in fact, so just left the three girls. They were all members of what we call the Independent Labour Party or the ILP. And Richard and Emmeline would take the children with them when they went campaigning on various causes such as free speech um, or whatever. And so quite young, really, as a young woman, or before that, from about 12 to 14, uh, Christabel was well-versed in radical politics And she really cut her teeth as a speaker in dealing with quite rough working class crowds. And so she developed the skill of repartee, which was very useful for her later when she became a key figure in the suffragette movement. So she chose suffragism as her main cause. What was it that led that to stand out for her versus all the other causes that her uh, father was engaging with? Um, No, don't forget that both Christabel and her mother had been members of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. So they had been in that movement, and that movement believed in constitutional, peaceful methods um, to win the vote, such as writing to your MP or presenting an annual petition to Parliament. And that movement had been going on for at least... 50 years, and there'd been no no results, nothing tangible had come out of it. And so for Christabel and her mother, they both believed that the key inequality that women experienced at that time, um, late Victorian, early Edwardian Britain, was this lack of not being able to exercise the parliamentary vote. So... She embraces this cause, and yet, as you explained, at a very early point, 
she takes it in a different direction than it's been going over the fat over the previous half century. Could you explain that shift in tactics and uh, what it was that led her to uh, undertake it? Yes. Um, as I said, Christabel was a member of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which believed in peaceful constitutional methods. And she was also a member of the Independent Labour Party, and she was very critical early on of socialist men because she thought they upheld the principle of sex equality uh, but didn't implement it. And one day um, after the father had died, after Richard died, the Pankhurst women discovered that the hall built in memory of his name was used by a branch of the Independent Labour Party that wouldn't admit women as members. And so Christabel said to her mother, you know, this this is not good enough. We've got to do something about it. She chided her mother and said, you've let the cause of women's suffrage slide. And so they decided to set up this independent women's organization, the Women's Social and Political Union, or WSPU, and it was to be women only. It was to be concerned with deeds, not words, that is, with action, and lastly, it was to be free of affiliation to any of the men's political parties of the day. And initially, the WSPU engaged in peaceful campaigning, but when no results were available and when the newspapers didn't take any notice of them, let alone the male MPs in Parliament, Christabel said there had to be more assertive methods and so on the 13th of October 1905, together with her friend Annie Kenny, a working class woman, they interrupted a Liberal Party meeting at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester and asked about the question of votes for women, which the key speaker of the day, Sir Edward Gray, did not answer. And so what they did as planned um, was to cause a rumpus and they were hastily pushed outside the hall where Christabel deliberately committed the technical offence of spitting at a policeman. And, of course, they were arrested and taken to police station and in the police court the next day they refused to pay a fine uh, and were sent to prison. Um, and that was a wonderful tactic. It's, it's known as really as the first militant tactic of the suffragettes because what happened was the newspapers covered the story, condemning them and saying they were engaging in slum-like behavior um, because they were women, really, uh, doing these sorts of things. But it was important because what happened is that a lot of people flocked to join the WSPU. So their tactics were drawing attention to the WSPU, but you also describe their engagement with the leading politicians of the day. And I thought it was very interesting how you present the relationships with uh, certain leading figures in particular. You have uh, Henry Campbell Bannerman, who was shortly to become prime minister. Yeah. You have his successor, uh, Asquith. You have uh, David Lloyd George. And about how they and how their attitudes, you would have some who were sympathetic, you had some who were dismissive, but they all, none of them seemed to be willing to make it the priority that it was for uh, the, the uh, participants in the WSPU. 
No, that's right. And so it was not only a willingness to go to prison that the suffragettes engaged in, but they also engaged in this heckling of of um, MPs and particularly Asquith, who was hated because he was so anti. He really was. He was very strongly anti-votes for women. And yet he always had an eye for a pretty girl. I mean, there, I think there are some suggestions. He was almost a groper, to be honest, because... Um, <laughs> One of the sources I've read said that no woman was safe with him after dinner in a room on her own or in a taxi on her own. Now, that <laughs> indicates to me something very peculiar about him. It, it was interesting, the, the idea that you have uh, Campbell Bannerman, who is very, who is, who's uh, expressed sympathy and how... When he dies and he's replaced by Asquith, he is. It, there's a sense that the that the suffragette movement has taken a step backwards in terms yeah. of their ability, in, in terms of their their achieving that goal. Yes, I mean, I have no doubt that Asquith was the key figure in preventing um, a women's suffrage measure coming before Parliament. Um, and the other, of course, the other key reason why a bill never got through was that. There were the two main political parties, the Conservatives and the Liberals, always wanted party advantage from any women's suffrage bill. So the Conservatives or the Tories, whatever you want to call them, they wanted a, a bill that was based on a property qualification because they thought it would bring in propertied women who would be more likely to vote for them. Whereas the Liberals wanted a, a bill that was based on a much wider basis than property, and that would bring in working class women without property who would vote for them. So I don't think there's anything unusual in that, in polit male political parties wanting a measure um, about, about women that would bring them political advantage. As you explain in the book, that difference of approach is something that was also reflected in the Pankhurst family itself as they yes. began to uh, have disagreements over the direction of the movement. I was wondering if you could explain the differences that emerged there between uh, uh, Sylvia and Christabel and uh, how that played out uh, within the context of the WSPU. Yes. I mean, we must always remember that Kiss, um, that Christabel was regarded as one of the greatest living speakers of her day. So she was a powerful orator, very charismatic, a witty repartee when um, a heckler would say to her, don't you wish you were a man? She would answer back, don't you wish you were? And, you know, that <laughs> sort of thing, which was uh, very good in handling a crowd. Whereas Sylvia wasn't a good speaker, so there were individual differences there. But also because uh, Christabel wanted to keep the WSPU independent of any affiliation to men's political parties, that was the key division between her and Sylvia and also the younger daughter, Adela. Both um, Sylvia and Adela were um, socialists. They were socialist feminists, so they thought that the women's movement must move hand in hand with the socialist movement. And then, of course, in 1912, when after repeated promises from Asquith that he would give facilities from a women's suffrage bill and he never kept his promise, then, of course, um, they engage in more militant action 
such as smashing windows, which is what everybody may uh, remembers about them. Um, on the 1st of March 1912, unannounced, some of the suffragettes began to smash windows. And um, Sylvia and Adela were very unhappy about that. And yet at the same time, Christabel has talked about maintaining something of a more middle class focus, she, she, which I thought was interesting given her relationship with Annie uh, Kenny. It, it yeah. speaks to a, a real complexity of thought there in, in terms of how Christabel approached the issue. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that. Uh, what, what are you meaning about the, the um, votes for women on the same terms as men? Uh, the property yeah. qualification. Yes. yes. Yeah. All right. Um, well, Christabel was very realistic. She thought that adult suffrage, that is equal suffrage for all men and for all women, wasn't on the cards. And she was right on that. Um, Asquith wouldn't even entertain it or most of the other politicians. So what they argued for was equality with men. And it was only um, certain categories of men with, quali- with property qualifications who had the vote. So they argued for the vote on the same terms as it is or shall be granted to men. Um, Now, some people will say, well, that favoured middle-class women with property, but for me that was a very realistic aim because what you were doing there was you were breaking the sex discrimination that prevented all women, irrespective of who they were, if they were a governess, if they were a duchess, if they were a scullery maid, they couldn't vote. So the key thing for Christabel was ending sex discrimination, not ending class discrimination. I think you mentioned in the book that she argued that once women had the vote, then they could address these other issues. It increasingly yes. came about the, you know, getting that foot in the door with the vote itself. Yes. Yeah, I think that is a critical thing. Now, she, you described the, the various campaigns and, and, and relationships she had with, mem- with members of the uh, WSPU and how a, a lot of her efforts culminate in this exile to France, and I was, which I thought was very an interesting uh, outcome. And I was wondering if you explained how it was that she ended up uh, being uh, uh, forced to spend time in France as opposed to continuing the campaigns from England. Yes, well, when um, on the 1st of March 1912, when the suffragettes then engaged in this window smashing in fashionable shop windows in London's West End, well, as you can imagine, the police um, wouldn't tolerate this. And they came to the headquarters of the WSPU in Clements Inn to arrest the leaders. Well, they found Mrs. Pankhurst there and Emmeline Pecketh Lawrence, the treasurer of the WSPU, but they didn't find Christabel because Christabel had been warned beforehand um, that the police were going to arrest them. And she'd already arranged with her mother that if that did happen, she would flee to France where a political offender was not subject to extradition. And so there's this wonderful story about how she dresses up in disguise and is hidden in a nursing home um, and then eventually gets to Paris. And from Paris, she tries to lead the suffragette movement from there. How successful is she in that effort? I think she is quite successful, but it's interesting. I think the dynamics between her and her mother change. They were always very close 
because Emmeline is still in England, and Emmeline was one of these leaders who was always in the thick of the fight, and she was in and out of prison 13 times. She always went on hunger strike, uh, and then later she went on sleep and thirst strike, and that paid tremendous havoc with her body. But she was never forcibly fed, Emmeline. The authorities didn't dare feed her because on at least two occasions they thought she was near to death and they didn't want to have a martyr on their hands. So the, the dynamic between Christabel and her mother changes when Christabel is in Paris because Emmeline becomes in some ways the key figurehead here in England leading the suffragettes um, in this struggle to win the vote, but Christabel is the leader across the water. And Christabel has this very devoted circle of women who come and see her regularly, particularly Annie Kenny, Grace Rowe, Mabel Tuke, and they carry um, messages back and particularly copy for the um, journal called The Suffragette. And Christabel's writing is not easy to read, and I often wonder what these these notes were like that they carried back. They had to <laughs> decipher them at the other end and type them up. <clears throat> what was it that uh, allowed her to return to Britain uh, in 1914? Um, she returned briefly to Britain in 1914, um, but she didn't stay. Have you got the right date? Um, I, I, I was I, sorry. I, I was I was trying try to tra- transition to discussing uh, the, how uh, her her sentence was uh, basically her return uh, to England because of the war. Yeah. Right. Well, when war breaks out in 1914, Emmeline and Christabel understandably um, support their country in its time of need and become very patriotic, and. What is interesting, if you read their speeches, is that intertwined with the emphasis upon winning the war is an emphasis upon women engaging in war work as a way to win their enfranchisement. And Christabel in particular um, says this in a, in a speech in 1914, that if you engage in war work, the government won't be able to deny you the vote at the end of the war. Um, she only stays a little while in Britain because she's afraid she's going to be arrested again. <laughs> and so for, for much of the war, she's traveling around and she comes to the States, as, as you will know, and uh, tries to get um, the Americans on side to come in and fight with the Allies. Her position on the war, as you describe, is another point of difference between uh, Christabel and Sylvia. You you describe how the uh, the, the the newspaper is renamed uh, Britannia and yeah. how it, it it definitely takes a, a very strong stance and, and 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 castigates liberals like Edward Gray for yeah. their uh, you know for not prosecuting the war strongly enough. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, describe that dynamic a little bit further before talking about uh, how the uh, basically how those efforts ultimately result in women getting the vote. Yes. I mean, don't forget, Sylvia was a pacifist during the First World War, and so she thought it was a war waged by capitalists um, and that it wouldn't bring any benefits for the working-class people, and particularly working-class men who were simply fodder 
been used by inept generals in the war. So that was a major difference yet again between them. And yet you find by 1917, the House of Commons has changed its view about women's suffrage and it is going to include a very limited measure of women's suffrage in the 1918 Representation of the People Act, which we're all celebrating over here in Britain. And that act gave the vote to certain categories of women aged 30 and over. Um, They had to be householders, married to a man who was a householder, living in a house of five pounds or more annual rent, or if they were university graduates. So it was a very cautious measure, in fact, and Christopher was rather disappointed about it. And the night that she heard the bill had finally been passed, she was sitting huddled over a fire with Jesse Kennedy, Jesse Kenny rather, um, celebrating but still feeling very disappointed. And that was the 6th of February, 1918. You situate her at this point uh, in, in Christabel's life. She seems to be a, a little uh, adrift. It, it, it's, she's ch- achieved this goal that she's been working for for so long, uh, and yet you still have, uh, you know, it, 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 as you described, it's not quite what she's uh, seeking. And you also have the, you know, ending of the war and all that's happened. And, and you, you situate her... Uh, turn towards Second Adventism during yes. this period. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon what it was that brought her to Second Adventism and how she ultimately embraced that and, and how her life changed as a result. Yes, well, I think the war affected her profoundly, as it did a number of women, because of the carnage and the the killing of so many young people. And she was trying to explain that, trying to find an explanation, you know, why was this happening? And she was browsing in a bookshop in London and she comes across a book on biblical prophecy and she she finds that book in Easter 1918 and by November 1918, when the armistice has been called and the war has ended, she has converted to Second Adventism. She thinks she, find, she can find an answer there to these horrors. But she doesn't tell anybody about it apart from her mother. She keeps it very, very quiet until 1921. And I think that was partly that she was afraid of the reaction of other suffragettes to her religious turn. I was thinking about that uh, passage that you quoted from uh, Sylvia's uh, book about uh, where she's quoting her father as saying about how you know, if they turn towards religion, it's a life wasted. And I'm wondering to the degree to which that was Sylvia taking a dig at her sister because she never undergoes that journey, does she? No, I think you're right. I think that is Sylvia taking a dig at her sister, and that, that's why I mentioned it. And uh, I think there is this thing, um, you know, with a lot of looking at biographies of feminists, if, if they turn to religion, some pe- people find it odd. In the way, perhaps, you don't find it odd if if you're writing a biography of of a key male political figure. But um, we expect different things, I think, of feminist women. One thing I thought was fascinating was how when she 
comes to America and, and she does so prior to her move, how yeah. much of a celebrity she is within yeah. the United States. Yes, I know people really embraced her. Um, you know, she's this icon, this feminist icon, and I include a little bit in there about how she was still wearing quite dated clothes from the 30s, but it doesn't matter that, you know, that they liked her. And, of course, she loved the American people. She found them very generous. She liked the she settles in the the nice, warm Los Angeles area that I still haven't visited, um, <laughs> and, and I must come someday and see what it's all like. And as you know, she um, appears frequently on TV as a social commentator, and she even had her own little radio program for a while. Now, were they? Uh, did the Second Adventists were they? Uh, did they uh, provide her with that platform because? they were uh, taking advantage of her celebrity status or was it because she was as effective as a preacher as she had been as a uh, suffragist speaker? I think both. I think she was a very, very successful suffragist uh, speaker. She was a very, very successful uh, second Adventist preacher. And she also wrote these books, um, that sold very well. And don't forget as well that she had a, an adopted daughter to look after, so she had to earn money. She had to earn her living. She, We didn't mention, but she did have a first-class honours degree in law in 1906. She was awarded that, and she couldn't train as a barrister because she was a woman. So she had to find some calling in life, and she felt called to Second Adventism. And I don't condemn her for that, and I don't know. I can't understand why others do. Well, I, I think the point you made uh, a moment ago was is a very interesting one about how it, it that there's almost the sense that if you if, if a woman chooses a, a different path, especially when she's accomplished what she set out to do to begin with, about how that approach is, is taken very differently. Yes, yes. Um, I think that's a very, very important point to remember, but... As far as I understand from her conversion to Second Adventism and her various um, sermons that she gave, she always stressed the importance of women in the Bible. So it was women who first found Christ when he, um, when the tomb was empty and he appeared to them. And she, she does bring that in about um, the importance of women in early Christianity. And so she was really opening up, I think, the path for women to become preachers because don't forget, she really saw herself as Church of England. And the Church of England is very patriarchal. And, of course, then women were not allowed in any way to preach in the churches. So she had to find an alternative avenue. The one aspect of her move that I found to, to Los Angeles that I found surprising was how it contrasted with her uh, her patriotism uh, during the war. Would, yes. did, did she ever feel alienated from uh, her uh, her community, her interest in England, or uh, was it just that she simply found uh, that Second Adventism was a, a better home in, in the United States than it was in England? Oh, yeah, I think it it was a better home for her. And I think in many ways she wanted to get away from England um, because by then 
this narrative of Sylvia's and the suffragette movement had become the dominant one and she was being cast out of the making of history. And don't forget, during the 1930s, she was writing her own account of the suffrage movement and um, people kept pleading with her, Sylvia, um, pleading with her, Christabel, you know, will you publish a book? And she always delayed on that because she said she didn't want to disagree with her sister Sylvia in public. And so her own manuscript called Unshackled, the story of how we won the vote, was never published during her lifetime. It was only after she died that it was published. Do you think that choice contributed to effectively ceding the ground to Sylvia in the way that you've addressed in your book? Yes, I think it did. It did cede the ground to Sylvia. And also, you see, as women's history developed here in Britain, it was a left-leaning women's history that was very sympathetic to Sylvia as a socialist feminist. I mean, Sylvia was a great woman in her own right, but she was a socialist feminist, whereas Christabel, I think we would see much more now as a separatist feminist who wanted to keep the women's movement away from the male party politics of the day. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, I'm just having a little breather at the moment because I've got so many talks to do. I spoke to, in Parliament um, two days ago, and then I'm speaking at the Museum of London tomorrow about my book, and then I'm at the National Portrait, no, the National Gallery in London in April, um, speaking about it. And, and then I'm going to decide what I'm going to work on next. <laughs> well, I, I hope all of this helps give your book uh, the attention it deserves because it really is a wonderful biography. Oh, thank you so, so much. And I mean, you're so knowledgeable about it. You've read it very, very carefully. Well, I- well thank you very much. Uh, June, I hope, uh, thank you again for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. 